three, um, Lee just came up to me and said, hey, are you going to the Valentine's dance? Because you don't hold me anymore either. I'm not really quite sure what to do with that. Yeah, I'm thinking about it now. I'm, no. <laughs> so uh, I wake up in the mornings, some, some, some mornings when my kids get up, way too early and I'm not ready for them to kind of have the run of the house. We, we kind of stay in the bedroom and this morning was one of those. It was like 6.30. Mom was not ready to get out of bed. So we stayed in the bedroom um, and we have this little rocking chair in there. And so Grayson will be in his crib and Ethan will come and sit in my lap. And any time that I can get that boy to sit still in my lap is a good thing. So I like kind of, kind of suck the marrow out of that time. It's, it's a really special time with my boys. But this morning, my boy, literally this morning, my boy asked me the question that every pastor dreads hearing. He goes, Daddy, why do we have to go to church? I'm like, you're four and a half. You're not, you're not supposed to be asking this yet. And so, you know, part of me is wanting to just go, because I said so. But I realize I'm going to have to pull that one out when he's in high school. So, <laughs> so I, ha- I kind of had to step back a second and go, you know, that's a valid question. Why, why do we need to go to church? What, what is the benefit of it? You know, and so I start thinking about it for him, but from his perspective, but I think that's a question that many of us might ask ourselves as well. Why do we, why do we do this? Why do we show up on Sunday mornings? Why do we meet in, in people's homes throughout the week to continue studying together? Why do we do fun things like the Super Bowl in the a- this afternoon or, you know, go to Skid Row or build homes in Mexico? Why do we do those kind of things? What's the point? And, and when I say church, by the way, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a community of believers. Why do we gather as a community of believers? What's the point? Um, well, I can tell you what the point is as our churches, as the elders and as pastors, we come together and go, what are we doing this for? What is our purpose? This is what we came up with. You know, the vision of Lighthouse Community is to love people as we lead one another, as we kind of spur one another on into a more personal, passionate, and productive relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what we exist for, to love one another and spur one another on towards a more personal, intimate, passionate all-in, productive, fruitful relationship with God. And I have to say, as both a member of this church, as a pastor, and as just somebody who's in community here, I think we do the first part of that vision statement very, very well. This is a family. This is a community. And when Grayson was born prematurely, I, could, I cannot tell you what a support it was to have this church family surround us and support us through that. So many of my closest friends are sitting in this room this morning, and I'm really grateful for that. So much so that when, you know, this last year, Kat and I had a couple of weekends that we took off, and I, at that point, you know, I have a Sunday off. I can go anywhere that I want. We can stay at home. We can go to another church. And, and as we're sitting at home having breakfast together, we're like, well, where do you want to go to church today? And both of us just kind of go, we want to go to our church because that's where our, our, our friends are. That's where our church family is. And I I suspect a lot of you feel the same way. So I think we do that first part really, really well. But if that is the sum total of the benefit that you get out of coming to Lighthouse, then we're missing the point. 
If we think that simply creating community amongst one another is the goal of doing life together, of, of, of this church gathering, of Sunday mornings, of the small groups during the week, of the service projects and so forth, then we are completely missing the point. Because of even greater value is growing in our intimacy with Jesus Christ, of, of becoming more intimately aware of his voice, recognizing our shepherd's voice, and then cultivating a heart that is willing to submit our purposes to his, of being slowly made more holy in our lifestyle. I, I should probably mention right now, that term holiness that we kind of throw around we have a lot of, I understand, Christianese words that we're all familiar with, but I really wonder if we fully understand the extent of what some of these words mean. So let me ask you a question. Let's try to define holiness by first asking, what is the opposite or the synonym of holiness? And don't say unholiness because that's defining a word by the word. <laughs> what do you think the opposite of holiness is? Sinners defiled what? Unclean? Worldly, selfish. Okay, so holiness is a term that's found predominantly, it's found all throughout scripture, but the, the book of the Bible that it's found most regularly in is the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. The book that is intended to help organize the temple structure and that the priests that would come and serve before God. And holiness was a very important concept for the Israelites, because in their mind, you had the world and then you had kind of God in the midst of the world and you had common things that you would, you know, think of common bowls that you would use to eat out of yourself or feed your animals with. And then you had articles that were to be used to worship God. And those articles, maybe it's a bowl, maybe it's a plate, maybe it's a piece of clothing, were to be set apart for him. And so they were called holy or set apart. The opposite of holy is actually common. The best example I could give you is take your fine china at your home. For those of you who have it, we just decided, what's the point? Because we're going to have boys and they're going to break them. But if you have fine china... Think about the way that you treat that china, right? It has maybe its own place where it sits in a cupboard that actually has glass so you can see it. It's on display, but it's separate. You don't pull it out at every single meal. You use it for special occasions, maybe a birthday, maybe somebody special comes over to your home and you pull out the fine china and you treat it with respect. But imagine, husbands, if you made the mistake of grabbing one of those china dishes and taking it out into the garage and using it to catch the oil as you're changing <laughs> your, your oil, you know, you're probably going to feel the wrath of the girl. That is the difference between what is common and what is holy. Do you get it? That's what holy means, uncommon, set apart from the ordinary. And that is what we are called to be. God himself says, be holy as I am holy. That is what we feel strongly as a church, that we are in the process. That, that's the goal in many ways of the lifestyles that we're cultivating is that we're becoming more set apart for God. 
and by God. So this whole focus for this year, we've, we've just come out of a series called Soul Training, but it's more than just a series. That is actually the vision for this year, the major emphasis that we're going to be having as a church, that we would be trained up that our lives would be transformed to be more holy as he is holy. That there would be a greater intimacy with Christ. Towards what end? And, and an even bigger question that we need to wrestle with is, okay, so what's our part in this? How do we make ourselves more holy? Toward that end, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. One of my, I'm just gonna, we're going we're gonna to focus on one verse today, if that's okay with you. This is one of my very favorite verses in Scripture, and it's hidden in the midst of Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me just remind us um, of the gospel message and of one of the major points of the gospel message. And that's this. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how good we are, and, and, and the Pharisees did their very best at this. If anybody could, it was those Pharisees who knew, had memorized all of the Old Testament scripture, knew it front and back, and, and, had, and were not simply willing to take just the rules that had been placed out there, but added thousands of new rules on top of it, almost creating fences around the rules so they would never get close to the edge of the cliff and actually sin. They believed that they could live a righteous life. And Jesus came, (laughs) and when Jesus came, you see him over and over shaking his head going, listen, guys, you understand the letter of the law, but you've missed its heart utterly. The law was put in place not to make you perfect, but to show you your desperate need for a savior and to coax you, push you, compel you into his arms. That's the purpose of the law, to show you that you're incapable of keeping the law by your own strength. And so the gospel message is good news for that very reason. This is the good news. What we are incapable of doing for ourselves, God did for us by taking upon himself the penalty that we had earned for ourselves so that we could be called righteous, perfect in God's eyes, even though we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. In the midst of a conversation, by the way, Hebrews is written to the Hebrew people. So they're coming from the mindset of the tabernacle and of the the animal sacrifices that took place every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would sacrifice tons of animals to atone for the sins of the people. And in the midst of that, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, those sacrifices were incapable of atoning, making right, paying the penalty for our sins. But verse 14, but by one sacrifice, namely Jesus going to the cross, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, I want to unpack this verse because there's so much in it. But before I actually get into that, I want to introduce us to two more words this morning. And again, these are Christianese words. And so we're going to spend a little bit trying to define them. But the purpose of doing this is not just so you can go, oh, more information. In a lot of ways, we're having a DTR conversation to define the relationship with God. Understanding 
how we can approach God and have a relationship with him and what our role in that is, okay? So the first of the two words we're going to examine this morning is a word called justification. Justification, there's a definition here. It is a legal term that refers to the act of freeing somebody from the guilt and penalty attached to grievous sin, to absolve them from their responsibility. In other words, to say, your debt has been paid. It's kind of like, think of the person who's released from prison, right? They've served out their entire prison sentence. They walk out of the prison a free person. They are justified. Their debt has been paid. It is finished. From a theological standpoint, God justified us through Jesus Christ. What we were incapable of doing by keeping the law and living perfect lives, lives, God did for us. The best picture I can get of the way that justification happens is think of God sitting on his judgment throne in heaven. He's got the judge's robes on. I mean, this is, again, just a a mental picture. He's got his judge's robes on, the gavel, and he sits in judgment of the entire world. And we walk into the courtroom and stand looking up at our just judge. And we know he is a just judge. He cannot simply disregard law. He cannot simply say, I forgive you. Because that would be completely negating the laws that we very clearly broke. And so as a just judge, he says, according to the law, you have broken it and you are guilty. And the penalty is death, eternal separation from me. But he is not only a just judge, but he's also a loving father. And so once pronouncing that judgment, he then stands up and takes his robes off And he walks down and he stands beside us and he pays the penalty for us. He takes upon himself the penalty that we had earned for us. In doing so, he completely pays the bill. Do you remember the last thing, the last words off of Jesus' lips before he, on the cross, finally breathed his last breath and died? What were his last words? It is finished. Tetelestai. Another way you can translate tetelestai, it is paid in full. It's the same word that when you had a bill that you owed somebody and you made your final payment, they would scrawl tetelestai across it and nail it up in the, in, in the public square so that people could say, this bill is completely paid for, it is finished. And that is what he did for us on the cross. And it would be unfair for anybody to then come to you and say, you still owe. Well, you, but it's been paid. Yeah, but you didn't pay it, you still owe. You are still a debtor. And the message of the cross is, no, we aren't. Because of what Jesus did as sons and daughters of God, it is finished, paid in full. So Hebrews 10, chapter 14, by one sacrifice, once and for all, he has made us perfect forever. It is a momentary thing that when we finally bend our knee and say, okay, Jesus, 
I accept the gift that you bought for me. It becomes true of us. But that doesn't stop there. Because Jesus did not die on the cross simply to be our savior. Simply to save us from hell. That wasn't his end game so that we could kind of live our lives any way we want. And then once we finally shuffle off this mortal coil, whether it be in five years or 50 years, that we then enter into his presence and don't have to go to hell. He didn't die simply to buy us a ticket to heaven. Jesus Christ died so that he could wipe away the thing that kept us from intimacy with God. Our sinfulness that kept us estranged from our Father in heaven who created us at least in part and a huge part to have relationship with us now, not then, not when we die. And so we keep reading in Hebrews chapter 4, by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. A process of being set apart. Now the big 10 cent Christianese word for that, if we have justification, is the momentary act of paying for the sin so that we can stand and be literally declared perfect or righteous in the eye of the law because the penalty has been, has been paid. The flip to that, the other word is sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word for being set apart, the same thing that being holy is. It is set apart from the common. We are set apart for something else. It is the process of being made holy. And this is not a momentary thing. If, to use another metaphor, think of marriage. Justification is the process of standing up and saying, I not only believe, but I submit my life to Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Come into my life and have your way. I do. And in that moment, Jesus' atoning sacrifice covers us and we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are justified in the eyes of the law. Instantaneous. But the process of sanctification is everything that happens after I do. It's a process of learning how to do life in relationship with our Lord and Savior. It's a process of learning to recognize his voice and being willing to submit to it. It's a process of being set apart and being made holy, which begs the question, well, what, isn't that our part then? Is it our job then to make ourselves holy, right? Jesus justifies us. We could, everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I got that. Nobody, you know, will be declared righteous in the eye of the law. I got that. Okay. It's by faith through grace that we've been saved, not by work so that no man can boast. I've got that. Okay. Justification. Jesus did that for me. Amen. Sanctification. Now this is my job. I have to try really hard to be really good. I have to set myself apart. And in so doing, then I'll be useful to God. And this is all on me. That's a, that, that sounds right to my human mind who has been kind of trained in this world that says you know, that love is contingent upon action and all those kind of things. It sounds right because I'm a guy and that's kind of how I live my life. 
But then I actually look at how I live my life. And I look at the ways in which I have many times tried to do just that, to set myself apart by my own strength. And in so many ways I can identify with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he goes, man, the things I don't want to do, I keep doing. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. What a wretched, wretched man I am. Yeah, guilty. In a lot of ways, when we begin to focus on our brokenness, focus on the areas where we fall short and say, I must change. I will change. And then through sheer grit and determination, make an effort to change. It's kind of like throwing water on a grease fire, hoping it'll go out. And instead it spreads. It grows more intense. Maybe we can get control over this one little area that we're fixated on, but then that pressure leaks out in other areas. Another image might be you kick over a rock to deal with the stuff that's under it and all those little bugs scatter under other rocks and all of a sudden you find yourself fixated on something else. We are broken individuals and we are utterly incapable of making ourselves holy by our own efforts in the same way that we're utterly incapable of making ourselves righteous or pure in God's eyes by our own efforts. So what hope do we have? How on earth can we actually say, how can we live out being holy as he is holy? Thankfully, we have a God who is capable and willing to make us holy. Think about this for a moment. The first place that we come across the term holiness in Scripture is found in Exodus. There's this guy, Moses. He is looking for a lost sheep in the wilderness. And as he's walking, looking for his sheep, he comes across this bush off in the distance that's burning. That's curious. And the bush doesn't seem to be getting consumed. That's even more curious. I've got to go investigate. And as he gets close to the bush, he hears a voice, Moses, take off your sandals for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. First reference to holiness in scripture. Now, what made that ground holy? Was it special dirt? No, it was God's presence in that place that set that bush and that ground apart from the common. As he drew closer to the bush, he, drew in, he, he began to enter into God's presence, and thus he was entering holy ground. So treat it with reverence. Don't just walk all over it. Take your shoes off. Fast forward. You have the tabernacle, which is the kind of precursor to the temple that the Israelites built as God's kind of home or, or residence on earth. And this tabernacle was also called the tent of meeting for a reason. This is where Moses and then, I'm sorry, Abraham, and then later the, the high priests would come to meet with their God and speak with him and, and get direction from him. And if you go into the tabernacle, the, the first section, the, the, the biggest section, is called the holy place. It's where they had the, the loaves of bread that represented each of the 12 tribes. It's where they had the altar of incense, where they would have incense, with aroma pleasing to the Lord, and it's kind of the prayers of the saints going up to them. But if you went to the back of the tabernacle, to the back of the holy place, there was a foot-thick curtain separating 
the holy place from the holy of holies, the inner sanctum where only the high priest went once a year on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to offer sacrifices and confessions for the people. And that holy of holies was holy because that's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And that Ark was considered to be God's throne on earth where God would come down and touch mankind. Why was the Holy of Holies holy? Because this was a place set apart for God. This was God's throne. This was set apart and completely other than the common area. What makes something holy? Hello. (laughs) There you go. What makes something holy? God's presence. God's active presence in that place. It is set apart for that. Now think about this. When we submit our lives to Jesus and say, I do. God gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us. As our comforter. As our counselor to help guide and train us, even to help us in the moments where we don't know what to pray. The Holy Spirit is there to help us in our groanings, to interpret that and bring that into the throne room of heaven and say, intercede for us. The Holy Spirit is God living in the midst of us. And it is the Holy Spirit that makes us holy. It is the spirit of God residing within us that begins to set us apart. Now, we do have a role in this, I should say, in the same way that we are made perfect. You know, we get our justification by saying I do and submitting our lives. We are made holy as we begin to draw nearer to God and submit our lives to him to begin to submit ourselves to the spirit's leading to begin to begin to actually listen to the still small voice of the spirit within us guiding and directing and leading and then being willing to actually obey. This brings us to the whole point of what this next six or eight weeks is going to be about, because what we are going to embark on over the course, uh, over the next six weeks, starting next week is a series called the life you've always wanted, which sounds like one of those self-help kind of things, but it's anything but. And I want to be very clear at the outset. This series is not about giving you your best life now, although that will be a product of it. This series is not about making your life more more comfortable or enjoyable or about making you a better person, although that may be fruit of it, although I doubt more comfortable. This series is about learning spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that that our Christian brothers and sisters generations before us have been using to help clear away the clutter that keeps them from being able to hear the Spirit's still small voice. Clearing away the clutter that so easily entangles us from being able to run the race that God has laid out before us. And here is the danger of talking about spiritual disciplines. And the reason that we're having this conversation right now is because I want to be very clear at the outset. 
It is very easy for us to look at the spiritual disciplines and say, hey, listen, this is something that I do. Therefore, these disciplines are rungs on a ladder to righteousness. All I need to do is read my Bible more and pray more and fast a little bit. And then, you know, and I can get closer to God. Yay. You know, or I can be more Christ-like simply by doing these things by my own effort. And the whole point of what we've talked about so far is simply to make the point that if we try to do anything by our own effort apart from God, although we may see you know, momentary fruit, it's nothing that will last. John 15, Jesus Christ, I am the vine, you are the branches. In me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. If we remain connected to the vine, out, there's no limit the amount of fruit our lives can produce. But by our own effort, severed from the life-giving and life-directing vine, we are nothing but dry, fruitless twigs. And I am sick of living my life in that way. I don't want to waste another minute trying to do this by my own strength and, and, and seeing just how fruitless and pointless it is. So the spiritual disciplines are not here to give us new hoops to jump through so that we can be more righteous by our own strength. The spiritual disciplines, their whole purpose is this. Everything that we're going to talk about over the next six weeks, all is focused on this. Clearing away the clutter that hinders us from being able to recognize our shepherd's voice and draw into a more intimate transformational relationship with him and saying, have your way with me. Spiritual disciplines that we're going to look at, like slowing down, because I think we all live pretty busy, harried lives, and it's difficult to hear anything when we're just rushing. Spiritual disciplines like prayer and confession, bringing the things before God that really matter to us and the things that keep us from wanting to move towards him. And laying those down at his feet. Spiritual disciplines like becoming familiar with and, and, and steeping ourselves in God's word. His autobiography where we can learn about him and where it's still living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword and it has the ability to just penetrate and speak directly to where we're at. It's not some cold, dead, dry, lifeless book. Spiritual disciplines like serving not for accolades, but for the right reasons. And we'll talk about why do we serve and how can we serve in such a way that it's not just about getting credit for it. Even spiritual disciplines like celebration, celebrating the things that God has done because in moments of difficulty, it's very easy to forget the way that God has been faithful in previous times of difficulty. The point of the disciplines we're going to be exploring over the next six weeks is to help us posture ourselves in such a way that we are open to relationship, that we're able to hear and recognize our shepherd's voice, that we are more willing to actually submit and follow him. And as we follow him, as we draw nearer to him, we enter holy ground and we become more and more holy. I should mention, 
The process of holiness, whereas perfection, we are made perfect through that one sacrifice. Justification is instantaneous. The sanctification process is a process of a lifetime. And not a single one of us, not even Merv and Jean, are complete in their sanctification process. We all, this side of the grave, are going to continue to be set apart and continue to need to lay things down. And that is where the Holy Spirit joins with us so that we can be made holy. One last thing. I'm going to invite the band to come up right now. One last thought as I close this morning. There are some of us here, I suspect, that when we talk about this and we talk about holiness, your first impulse is, great. Because if we're supposed to be holy as he is holy, that's wonderful. But when I actually look at my life, I'm anything but. I am a mess. And I am weak. And I am sinful. And the shame begins to build. And we become like wounded dogs. You know what happens when a dog gets hurt? What do they do? They run off and they hide somewhere. And they begin to lick their wounds until they get healed. And then and only then do they feel safe to come back into other people's presence. And that is such a human response. When we sin, when we look at our lives and we realize, oh, woe is me, I am an unclean person with unclean lips and unclean mind and unclean lifestyle. We want to push ourselves away from God and hide and go try to clean ourselves up. And then only when we are cleaned up, Do we feel like we can come into his presence? And the message of this morning is just the opposite. What we need to do is when we feel that way, we need to run into the arms of the only person who can clean us up and heal us. Our divine physician, our father in heaven who loves us so much that I mean, think of I think of my boys when Ethan messes up when Ethan disobeys there's this part of him that just kind of wants to pull away and hide because he knows he's probably going to get in trouble and because he feels like in some ways he may have tarnished the relationship and as his father yes there may be discipline involved there but it's because I love him not because I just want to punish him wantonly I love that little boy so much that for me I care more about his character than I do his comfort And for me to simply turn a blind eye and ignore it is to leave him emaciated as a human being. My desire for that little boy is to grow up and to be a man who can lead others, a man who people are attracted to be around because of his character, not because of the way he looks, because of the way he treats other people. And when God looks at us, he sees his son He sees his daughter and he loves us more than we finite, fallible human beings could even possibly fathom. There is nothing that we have done to deserve his love. And that doesn't matter because he loves us so much that he says, come to me. All you are hurting and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take off the burden of trying to be good enough and rest in your true identity as my son and my daughter. And then we can begin to live out 
a life of holiness as a response, not a prerequisite to his love. We're going to explore this concept a lot more over the next six weeks. I just wanted to make the point. God bless you. I just wanted to make the point that we cannot make ourselves holy. We desperately need God. We desperately need to draw near to him. So let's spend some time worshiping him and thanking him for the fact that we don't have to be perfect. He desires us in relationship with us anyway.